This is Evercore Edge, Evercore's thought leader sharing insights on today's markets and events. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Evercore Edge. I'm Jason Sobel, co-head of U.S. Investment Banking at Evercore, and I'm joined today by Evercore founder and senior chairman, Roger Altman. As we sit down this afternoon, top of mind is the tragic situation unfolding in the Middle East following the deadly attack on civilians in Israel. First and foremost, I want to express my deepest compassion for those innocent lives lost, missing or injured, and acknowledge the devastating impact the war has on a human level. Roger, with that in mind, this war will undoubtedly also have an impact on the markets. Drawing on your experience in government and in investment banking, I think it's important for people to understand what lessons can be learned from the past, what can we expect, how will M&A markets, capital markets, how could this unfold in this geopolitical unrest that, that is unfolding before our eyes? Well, right at this moment, it seems to me, we're at a, a very, very dangerous point because there's, a, a, there's an acute risk that this could spread into a much larger conflict. So at this second, uh, Israel has massed between 350,000 and 400,000, as best I can tell, soldiers on the border of Gaza, keeping in mind Gaza is tiny, and a giant amount of tanks, these armored bulldozers, and so forth, in addition to obviously its air power and has essentially said, we'll see if they follow through, that it intends to go house by house, basement by basement, until it has eliminated the Hamas fighters, and there are thousands of them, including many in tunnels and so forth. And there's a great fear that that could turn into a very long, very bloody uh, uh, process, which could in turn bring Hezbollah uh, in the north, just on the Lebanese border, into the conflict. And there's daily exchanges of fire between Israeli forces and Hezbollah forces at the moment. And if that could happen, possibly bring Iran into the conflict, and then it gets worse from there. So the, the question as to how it affects market, I think, entirely depends on uh, where it goes from here. And the United States, as everybody can see, is doing its very best to uh, urge and pressure Israel for restraint in this upcoming Gaza uh, uh, invasion. And it remains to be seen whether that's going to succeed or whether it's going to be a case of Israel going uh, big and all in, as people say. So, so I think it just depends. So far, there's been very little effect on markets which is not surprising because so far it's not an economic event or a financial event for the West. Um, but if this turns into a wider conflict, that could quickly change. Uh, and it could be, that would be manifested among other things by rising oil prices, which so far have, been, have had a muted effect um, and other you know, negative consequences. Uh, if, if it turns out that the call for restraint is heated in one form or another, perhaps there won't be any giant, uh, major financial market effects, period, and any effects on the merger volume or uh, other aspects of our, of our business. But it's at a, we're at just at a really uh, sensitive moment here. 
It's interesting, the, the uncertainty that and that sensitive moment we're in, I would imagine sometimes CEOs are asking you, is this a moment in time to buckle down, short my balance sheet, focus on my house? In some cases, it's mega mergers and scale economies like you know some of the energy ones we're seeing. Are there any implications for how you're talking to CEOs or how CEOs are asking you how to navigate this particular moment in uncertainty, or is it well, industry-specific and company-specific? The, the uh, horrible Hamas attacks occurred on October 7th. So we're essentially, we're nearly three weeks uh, from removed from that. So far, while there's a lot of sensitivity at the board of director level and the CEO level to the conflict, and in large part because it's just simply so horrifying, and because they have employees and customers and other constituents who are very sensitive to it and concerned about it. Um, they've been quite vocal, generally, at least into their own employees. But in terms of their planning and, and the intersection of their planning with what we do, I don't see much effect yet. Um, I think there are two more powerful things going on than this conflict so far. One is pent-up demand for transactions. Uh, we've come through a slow period. Everybody knows that. We're still in a slow period. But there's a lot of pent-up interest in strategic transactions. But the other factor is, is, a, is, a, is a counter factor and going in the other direction, which is uh, we've seen a sea change in interest rates. And we seem to be now, uh, we seem to have come out of a long period, which began in 2008, so 15 years, of ultra-low interest rates. And there's a strong point of view, I share it, that that period is over. That's just over. And we have, at the moment, a 10-year a treasury at yielding 5%, highest rate on the 10-year on the since 2007, I believe. And that change in interest rates uh, affects returns, especially for sponsors and it negatively affects them. It affects asset allocation. That's between appetite for equity, appetite for fixed income, um, and, and safety, appetite for safety. And it's a very important change. A lot of people haven't quite in, uh, uh, incorporated that change into their thinking, but I can see a lot of people, on the other hand, who are. Not to move on from that, but something a little closer to U.S. home, which is we have a presidential election coming up next year right around the corner in what is currently a slowdown period. And it could be a divisive one and certainly an un uncertain one. I guess drawing on your government and banking experience, you've, you've seen a number of presidential elections from multiple sides. Can you give us any observations or pattern recognition around heading into such a year? You know, do, do companies try to speed up or slow down or think about does the, you know, the summertime of 24 are going to bring something that we should expect. How, how do you expect clients to navigate that additional uncertainty pending? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, the election is more or less a year from today. Um, historically, it depends on whether one election outcome at the presidential level or the other is seen as representing big change. If it is, then often uh, decision makers 
either want to act now and get it behind them before the election is at hand, or alternatively just wait. But if it isn't seen as big change, um, either because we, we're going to have divided government either way and the agenda of either candidate isn't likely to be implemented, or for another reason, then it often doesn't have much effect at all. In this case, because the prospects for a uh, turbulent or chaotic election season are very high, given the absence of a speaker in the House, the polarization of the country, continuing controversies over election results, eight of the nine candidates for Speaker of the House at the moment are election deniers. Um, uh, this may be a different year that way. It could be a, a year that's pretty negative for transaction volume. But historically, you, we've seen a lot of cases where basically decision makers say, when you, when you, when you cut through it all, it's not going to make much difference whether X is elected on the Democratic side or Y on the Republican side. And so I'm just going to proceed. In that regard, one difference that certainly transpired from the uh, prior administration to this one is uh, also around antitrust, the OJFTC. So that may have implications. And so can you talk a little bit about your observations around that with the election, with what we've experienced recently with the DOJ and FTC and whether that plays into the impact as well? Well, well around mid-2021, uh, uh, or mid to late 2021, the Biden nominees for chair of the FTC and assistant attorney general for antitrust actually took their jobs. And those are the two key positions on this. And the two appointees, Jonathan Cantor and Lena Khan, respectively, uh, or she, she's the FTC, obviously, and he's mm -hmm. justice, um, made very clear from the very beginning they were going to change antitrust policy. Um, and change it uh, substantially and change it to, to, towards becoming more restrictive. And subsequently, uh, they've made every effort to do that. Um, by the way, that's not really a surprise if you study her background or his for that matter, and they're both protégés of very progressive members of Congress. Um, now, since that time, two plus years, there's been an evolution of thinking among clients about this, because initially there was a, a sense that, wow, uh, it's going to be hard to get anything done. And I think the, those nominees and their departments succeeded beyond their wildest dreams in deterring deals that might have otherwise happened. You can't see that because we know at Evercore what we worked on and which was decided, which was deterred, but we don't know elsewhere and nobody else does either. So. It's actually a big amount of deals they've deterred. So invisibly, so invisibly speaking, they've been very successful. But now there's a, there's a different view um, um, among so many corporations and lawyers and others, which is they've actually failed to stop a number of deals they've challenged, most notably Microsoft Activision, but others, because some of those cases have gone all the way to the end through litigation and the government side has lost. And now there's a sense of greater possibility, so to speak, in terms of com deal completion. Now, uh, if President Biden is reelected, 
I don't know why the, the policy that, that he has in place now through these appointees would change. Um, and by the way, uh, the last six or seven months, the administration has been espousing what they call Bidenomics. If you actually look on the website as to what that means, there are three pillars, and the third p pillar is competition policy, which means antitrust. So it's a really central aspect of what the Biden administration is trying to do economically. Now, if Biden loses, or ultimately somehow is not the, not the candidate, uh, I think we'd see quite a change. Um, but, you know, who knows if that'll happen. Uh, by the way, regulatory policy is pretty tight around the world. It's pretty tight in Europe. Uh, you saw that the last hurdles the Microsoft deal had to cross were actually in the UK. And it's very tight in China because China is using uh, uh, what I'll call merger approval as a political weapon. So uh, just in the last few days, you've seen that uh, they may not approve the uh, Broadcom VMware deal. And we all experienced a harsh lesson here at Evercore with the Qualcomm NXP deal, which I worked on, and which... We just couldn't get through China, uh, but also the DuPont Rogers deal, which we worked on. I worked on that, which couldn't get through China either. So it's troublesome or challenging around the world, not just the United States. So many questions I want to ask you and, and on the minds of CEOs and maybe another uh, Edge episode will cover generative AI and technology and social media and the impact of that on capital markets. But maybe I'll, I'll end this way. We've talked about the geopolitical events. We've talked about antitrust, talked about interest rates. And, our, and maybe the last question is, what, what do you see as the state of the union of investment banking and the banking industry uh, in general? Uh, do we have cause for optimism? Do we have cause for concern? <laughs> we rattle through a lot of uncertainties we're all navigating, but would welcome your uh, experienced views on that. Well, first, investment banking as a whole, the whole industry. I've been doing this a very long time, and I don't like to admit how long. And the industry has gone through about 792 phases. Up, down, left, right, down, up, skinny, fat, tall, lean. You know, every phase that's imaginable, it's gone through. Uh, and you know, there's a famous, at least I think it's famous, chart, uh, which was done quite a few years ago, but I saw once, I, I don't have a copy of it, which showed how a tiny firm of maybe 45, 50 years ago called Kogan, Berlin, Weil, and Levitt, became Citigroup. And there were about 46 mergers that happened. And suddenly, Sandy Weil was CEO of Citigroup, or chairman. And it's, it's a hilarious <laughs> chart because, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the various times they seemed to merge with Cracker Barrel or whatever it was. Uh, now... In terms of uh, banking right now, you know, we see that there have been a lot of changes. Um, and uh, I think there'll just be continuous changes. The hierarchy in banking, the, the who are the leading firms? At one level, it has had a certain stability in it, firms like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and J.P. Morgan. But another level has changed dramatically. So uh, when I started, uh, with the exception of two or three f household name firms today, none of the other players are still here. They've all merged into other people and, you know, and so forth. But you haven't heard of any of those names for a million years. Um, and that actually, actually, it's a continuous cycle of growth 
and creative destruction. Uh, I mean, today, at this very second, Evercore is the third largest firm in the world in terms of just total advisory revenue. There's no ambiguity about the numbers. All the companies are public. All the companies break it out. If you told me 28 and a half years ago when I founded Evercore that we're going to be third in the world, I would have said, sure, and I'm going to, you know, fly to Venus without any machine. So uh, it's, it's astonishing to me. But that continuous change, very rapid change, I think is going to continue. I think it's going to, I think it's almost a permanent state of play. And one of the reasons for that is that the firms that were, um, in so many cases, the leading investment banking firms of so many years, now investment banking as we think of it, the way Evercore practices, call it advisory, is not the center of gravity at all in these firms. It represents a small percentage. I mean, I saw the other day that it's 15% of Morgan Stanley's revenues, probably less of Goldman Sachs revenues, probably less of JP Morgan's. So if it's not your center of gravity or even close to it, you know, it, it's not what you wake up in the morning thinking about if you're leading one of those firms. So um, there's just been big, big change, and I don't see that stopping. Well, I know we've covered a lot of uh, very big, very important, and very troubling topics, but um, it sounds like those that are focused on giving unconflicted advice may be more important <laughs> in times like this level of uncertainty. And Roger, with your experience, thank you for tackling these in a delicate and thoughtful way. Um, I think we have a new topic, which will be uh, uh, all the technology change and innovation, which we'll tackle on the next episode. But really, thank you all for joining and look forward to speaking to everyone on the next uh, Evercore Edge. Copyright 2023, Evercore. All rights reserved.